Michigan State? No. What is it? WCBN. Oh, WCBN! 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 Ann Arbor! That was me, Sin, and Jill for WCBN. Oh, yeah, wait, say, WCBN and them, Ann Arbor, say, WCBN. WCBN, Ann Arbor, WCBN, WCBN, Ann Arbor, and we gotta go to sound check. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Okay. Merry Christmas, everyone, and Happy New Year. Thanks so much for stopping by. Oh, we loved it. And remember this holiday season, if you're going to drink, get a designated driver. It's slippery out there. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Richard Rhodes, author of numerous books. I think we're up to 22 now. Um, he is the recipient of the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, and his book on the hydrogen bomb, Dark Sun, also was a finalist in history for the Pulitzer. His current book, John James Audubon, The Making of an American, is what we'll be discussing primarily today. Articles and um, bits of writing appear everywhere, not just in books. And um, Mr. Rhodes is also the editor of um, a collection of John James Audubon's writings called The Audubon Reader. So we have loads to discuss today. Welcome. It's good to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming down. Um, you're doing a little tour. Um. Yes, the paperback edition was just uh, issued of the Audubon biography and the Audubon readers. So I'm going around a few places and catching up on what was a three-month tour for the hardcover book. So I'm glad to be here. This is my daughter's alma mater. She graduated from the University of Michigan. So. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, welcome back. It's not your first time then. No, no, <laughs> <Yeah>. no. <laughs> And you'll be reading tonight at the Shaman Drum. We'll talk a little bit about that at the end of the show. But I wonder if you'd start off our show by reading a little bit from John James Audubon, The Making of an American. Yes. This is the beginning of Audubon's wandering through the wilderness looking for birds. Without any money, John James Audubon departed Cincinnati on Jacob Almack's flatboat, bound for New Orleans in mid-October 1820. My talents are to be my support, he confided to his journal that day, and my enthusiasm my guide in my difficulties. Almack and another flatboat captain named Loveless had lashed their boats together to pool their crews. The river was low and the current sluggish. They floated through the night but had only made 14 miles by daybreak. Audubon, his 18-year-old assistant Joseph Mason, and his friend Samuel Cummings prepared their guns, went ashore, and disturbed the autumn forest with the crack of gunshots and a haze of black powder smoke, warming up their pot-hunting skills. They bagged 30 quail, a woodcock, 27 gray squirrels, a barn owl, and a juvenile turkey buzzard. Audubon shot a young yellow-rumped warbler that he subsequently drew. It was, he said, in beautiful plumage for that season. 
and then dissected, finding its stomach full of small flies and a few seeds. In his journal, he quarreled with Alexander Wilson, his predecessor, for assigning the warbler to a new species, staking out ornithological territory, as he collected for the first time with publication in mind. In the days ahead, as they descended the Ohio, Audubon searched out the birds that he hoped might restore his name and reputation. He winged a fishhawk, an osprey, at the mouth of the Big Miami River, a handsome male in good plumage that tried to slash Joseph's hand when he reached for it and noted that all the hawks and eagles, quote, throw themselves on their backs to defend themselves, unquote. He was mortified with when a hermit thrush he shot, the first one that he had collected, was too damaged to draw. He killed four small grebes with one charge of birdshot out of a flock of 30 that escaped by diving or flying off. Quote, the second time I have seen this kind, and they must be extremely rare in this part of America. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. That's Richard Rhodes reading from his most recent book, John James Audubon, The Making of an American. Now, you start with Audubon's birth and go all the way to his death and tell all parts in between, and that spans the end of the 18th century into yes. the middle of the 19th century. <clears throat> um, and so the book is... is a portrait of this man, but also a portrait of uh, the U.S. at this time. We go through the War of 1812. Um, right. We go through the Civil War. <laughs> up to the, up Civil, to the War. Civil War. Right, right. yeah. And um, we get expansion all the way to the Mississippi, sort of the beginnings of Manifest Destiny, the Louisiana Purchase, all the stuff we learned in, right. <laughs> in grade school um, history for those of us who have little smidgens of, of this bit of well, history. Well, as I had until I did this research, so that was part of the fun of doing it. In fact... Um, Although Audubon was a very unique individual, and his wife Lucy Audubon as well, they were also part of what the historian Joyce Appleby called the first generation of Americans, by which she meant they were the first generation born here who didn't think of themselves as having come from somewhere else, and who, in the course of their lives, leaving home. When Audubon arrived in the United States in 1803, there were about six million people in the whole country. And he came at at the age of 18? He came at the age of 18 from France. Um, And they all lived within 50 miles of Atlantic tidewater. So a narrow band of Europeans clinging to the East Coast. Then the Trans-Appalachian West opened up in the course of his young adulthood, really. And in their experiences, this young generation of leaving home, of starting new careers, things that had not been part of the way people lived before then, they came to embody the qualities that we think of as the American character. I mean, optimism, because everything was open in the West, and individualism, leaving home, changing the family traditions, starting new towns, starting new businesses. Entrepreneurship. Exactly. That quality, too. And... That's where America came from, if you will. It wasn't, it, it wasn't built into everyone's experience that they would be this group of people with this set of characteristics. So it was actually developed during this time, which makes it a fascinating period. Which makes for um, part of a good answer for why Audubon. But let's talk specifically about Audubon, because there were other folks during this time oh, period. Oh, indeed. Who Andrew Jackson, many others. Right. Why Audubon? I first encountered Audubon back in the 1970s, when magazine writing about environmental issues really got started in this country. I was writing an article for a magazine about the Everglades, which at that time was as near death as it seems to be still today. 
And I had just finished wading the Big Cypress Swamp. This is the Florida Everglades. Yes, exactly. And was fascinated by the interconnectedness of all the organisms that lived in that swamp. I mean, there were frogs living in the in the bowls of orchids that lived on the sides of trees up above an alligator crawl space down below, that sort of thing. And I went down to Key West, puzzling over the question of what does wilderness mean to Americans? Clearly, some people felt that wilderness in the old tradition was basically a set of raw materials that you could use to build houses and put in railroads and pave over areas of swamp and so forth. Others had come to believe that wilderness had its own intrinsic merit, was somehow a part of of our sense of who we are because we're a wild species. We were never domesticated. So... But I got to Key West, and there was a place called Captain Geiger's House. I walked in, who supposedly had been a 19th century ship's captain and had made money down there. They used to change the markers along the channels, and the Key Westers did, so that the ships would shoal up on the rocks, and then they could harvest the, the cargo. Pirates. Right, pirates <laughs> of a sort, burglar pirates, if you will. In any case, when I walked in, laid out on a table in the parlor, was a set of Audubon's magnificent and almost shocking in its color and its brightness and its quality, set of four volumes of The Birds of America. And I immediately looked, when I looked at this art, thought, well, boy, I don't have to figure this out. This man's already figured this out. But I made a note at that time in my, my file of ideas to maybe someday write a book about it, Audubon. And the time came when it was appropriate to do that. So that's why Audubon, because he's a fascinating and interesting human being in his own right, as an artist, as, a, as an immigrant, and then because of this larger context that we talked about. And this question of wilderness, um, in Audubon's time, the, the question was more one of sort of exploration, acquisition, <clears throat> expansion, um, moving west. Um, and using the wilderness f- uh, for its raw materials. As raw materials. Um, the questions we have now are more about preservation. Right. Or preservation and competition with using the wilderness for raw materials. Um and we're much more conscious of this conflict, whereas in the yeah. 19th century, it was more... There really was no conflict, and that's, I think, where Audubon is much more important than simply the quality of his wonderful art. Let me explain. One of the raw materials in the early American wilderness of this population of pioneers were birds. Birds were not simply things that flew around and you looked at and thought they were cute. They were a source of food and an important source of food. That passage that I read from the book indicates that Audubon, having decided to become an artist of, of birds, is has hired on to this flatboat crew as a pot hunter. And his job is to feed the crew. They couldn't carry enough food on their ship, on their boat. They had to hunt every day, and that was his task. That's how he earned his living. So he shot a lot of birds just in that those two paragraphs that I read. And in fact, he did shoot a lot of birds, partly because, quite simply, there was no camera. There were no binoculars. The only way he could set a bird up to draw it was to kill it. And in fairness, he also did the sections to to study the anatomy and the structure and what was in the stomach, as I read there. Uh, And since he was in the wilderness and there was no grocery store around, once he was through drawing the bird and dissecting the bird, he ate the bird. So at least he was economical with what he was doing. In any case, birds were a major source of food. Hundreds of thousands of birds killed every month all over the United States for food. Audubon once saw a barge load 
a passenger pigeon. It's a particularly beautiful kind of bird that looked like a large dove sailing down the Hudson on its way to the markets of New York. Well, and market hunters all along the east, the Chesapeake yeah. ducks, exactly. the canvasbacks almost went the way of... When he was in New Orleans, he saw when there was uh, migration going by, he saw hunters by the hundreds literally lined up along the river waiting for the flock to go by so they could take their shot. And then the next day, the French market would be full of, of freshly killed birds. This tradition still continues a bit with the French. They still eat songbirds. We don't anymore, but we did in those days. Do you, what's the prohibition of song? Why did we stop eating songbirds and we continue to eat Well, we, ducks? we had reduced them down. To, oh, that's interesting. I don't know. But we had reduced the songbirds down to the point where it really was a question of conservation. And conservation didn't start in 1950. Early conservation efforts began perhaps in the 1860s. So there was, even at that time, an awareness that these birds that had existed in incredible numbers it's estimated that when Columbus arrived on these shores, there were 9 billion birds in North America, of which 3 billion were passenger pigeons. This, these birds that he describes in the, probably the most famous passage in his writing would darken the sky like a black river flo- flowing across the sky for days on end. He said when a flock had left a stretch of woods where they typically would stay for a couple of years until they'd eaten everything there was available to eat and then move on, he said that stretch of woods looked as if a hurricane had gone through. But killing passenger pigeons by the by the wagon load was a standard part of the practice, and he recognized even then, despite the bounty, that they were going to be extinguished eventually. He thought it would be because of the reduction in their habitat. Actually, it was because they became the original trap shooting. There was a trap of birds under, in a hole in the ground with a spring-loaded uh, door on it. And when the man raised his shotgun, he didn't shoot a clay pigeon. He shot a real one. By the thousands, go to a range, and they would have these traps full of passenger pigeons. Pull, he would shout, and the trap would open, and the birds would go up, and he'd shoot the birds, one, two, three. So that's where the pa- and that's where clay pigeons. The yes, term clay yeah, pigeons come it was from. originally a real, bird. a real bird. So the last passenger pigeon, whose name was Martha, died in the Cincinnati Zoo in 1913. That was it. There were no more. No more passenger pigeons. But the ivory-billed woodpecker mm. is back. Well, maybe. Maybe. I hope so. We all hope so. And then David Sibley, who is really a, a major authority in this country on birds concluded after looking at the videotape that it was it not. It may not, yeah. or it is not. On the other hand, what they also have is a sound recording. And there's no bird that makes a sound like the passenger pigeon. Audubon describes it, I'm sorry, like the, like uh, the ivory-billed ivory woodpecker. Audubon describes it as sounding like a clarinet. And the, the, the transcription he gives on his page is the word pet, pet. So it's really quite unique. And if the sound transcription is authenticated, that would indicate perhaps there is one. Mm. And this is in Arkansas. So the let me go along with this note just a little more. Because birds were a source of food primarily, people didn't think of them as complex creatures with complex lives. They thought of them much as we think of fish, as simple, as little packets of food on the wing, as it were, as having no feeling life of their own. Audubon, to the contrary, felt intensely that they lived with love and hate and passion and predatory instincts and all the things that parallel. I mean, he allegorized them a bit, 
But the fact is, he was one of the first field observation naturalists who studied their behavior, who saw how they lived, who saw them defending their nest, who saw them attacking each other in violent passion over a woman, as it were, a female that was waiting to see the outcome of the fight. So he, in his art, uniquely for his time, birds were normally shown standing on a tree branch against a white background with no animation at all because they were typically stuffed birds that the ornithologist had hired someone to go shoot for him. He just studied their bodies. He didn't go out and study their behavior. Audubon was one of the first of those who did. And I think the real importance of his work is that he introduced, in part, among others, the idea of the wilderness as a place of complexity, where there's the, there are things for us to learn, both scientifically and as individuals emotionally, by going out into that world that we came from and are part of. Well, that's a good place for us to pause for a short break. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Richard Rhodes. We're talking about his book, John James Audubon, The Making of an American. We'll be right back. <laughs> Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Richard Rhodes. We're talking about his book, John James Audubon, The Making of an American. And in the break, I was saying that I had grown up with these paintings all over mm. my house. And um, Audubon is someone um, who has been a household name yes. as long as I can remember. But in some bits of literature I've read about the book, um, you're quoted as saying that um, he was a great American artist who no one knew. And that, what do you mean? Who, really? <laughs> yeah, no, Audubon is known, of course, in his own day he was known. He really became quite famous and had dinner at the White House and so forth. But in the years since, his art fell out of fashion and began to be considered inferior, which it's not considering that he wasn't working with high-speed photo- photography. He was working with b- dead birds. Uh, dead birds who he tacked up to make look like they yes, were Yes, he, he set them scenes. up in the poses that he needed to, to show them as if in life. And finally, Audubon became something of a cliché, I think. It has only So, for example, 20 years ago, you could have bought any one of the plates of the Birds of America for a song which would have been a very wise investment because a set of the complete four volumes sold at auction in the year 2000 for $8.8 million. And the individual plates, depending on how, I would say how sweet they are, because the violent ones sell for a lot less. And he was very good about depicting the natural world's violence as well as its sweetness, sell for up to a quarter of a million dollars now. But you can get a very good couple of turkey buzzards Picking on a deer head for less than ten thousand, so a, it a depends, <laughs> depends on what people want on their walls. Yeah, in fact, there are three, there are three plates in the Birds of America that has birds standing on piles of horse manure, 
And I've noticed modern critics often describing them as rocks. They don't even know what it looks like to have a, had a horse go by. But that was, of course, as natural as having a car go by in Audubon's day. So he didn't see anything wrong with it. And there are mushrooms growing out of the horse manure, so it's, it's clearly, clearly not rocks. Clearly horse manure, yes, not right. rocks. <laughs> How did you choose the plates? There, there, there are plates reproduced in the, the paperback version and then in the hardback as well of, right. of your book. How did you choose the plates? I chose them primarily as for the ones that I discuss in the book so that the reader would have a quick reference. And in a couple of cases, there's one plate that confuses everybody because it's actually a painting by the French artist Jacques-Louis David showing Napoleon crossing the Alps with his soldiers. But Audubon's painting of a golden eagle was actually modeled on Napoleon. Audubon had complex feelings about eagles and himself and Napoleon. I mean, he was not an unambitious human being. Well, and one of, you don't touch on this um, fiction in his life story here, but one of the fictions about himself was, in fact, that he was um, born Louis the Seventeenth, the lost dauphin. Actually, that, that, came, that came later. He didn't ever make that claim. Someone else made that claim. Yes, his granddaughters. They're, Just because? <laughs> well, no, because, because since he was illegitimate, and that was a great problem for him. Illegitimate children in France were not allowed to inherit property, for example, and his father had substantial property. Uh, illegitimate children in England, when he went there to sell his subscriptions to this work in order to produce this work, probably would have lost him the wealthy and titled patrons that were subscribing to his book. So he did everything he could to hide his, his, and he allowed people to believe basically whatever they wanted to believe. So a myth grew up in the Audubon family among the daughters and granddaughters that he was the lost Dauphin. Uh. There were actually 84 claimants to that title in the 19th century, some of them Americans, some of them from other parts of the world. But the daughters truly did, some of them truly did believe this and kept careful journals of possible references in his writings and so forth. This was all settled a couple of years ago when a French molecular biologist sequenced the DNA on some hair of a head that's buried in one of the chapels in Paris and tried some of the descendants and confirmed conclusively that the buried head in the chapel in Paris is indeed the Dauphin, not, not John not James Audubon. John James Audubon. <laughs> That's one of the funnier stories about him, though. And it suggests a little bit of what a legendary character he was. I mean, he arrived in the United States at the age of 18, speaking not a word of English. He was taught English by two Quaker ladies in a boarding house where he was recovering from yellow fever. So for the rest of his life, this American woodsman, he spoke uh, with a heavy French accent and deed endowed everybody. A very quaint sort of English. Uh, he was handsome, movie star handsome. He had long chestnut hair that he wore unfashionably long, kind of like the men on the covers of romance novels. He was, uh, he played the violin, he played the flagolet, a sort of recorder, he sang beautifully, he danced well enough to teach dancing. All of these talents made him someone who both men and women enjoyed being around. And he turned all this to good. Plus, of course, he was a hunter. He hunted with Osage Indians and Shawnee. He had a wide, wide range of experiences in his life, a very colorful life. And not without adversity. Um, oh, he had indeed. quite a bit of 
of trouble along the way. It's, it's not a charmed life that he led, despite some charmed elements. No one in those days, I mean, of his four children, only two lived to adulthood. The two little girls died before they were three years old of fever and so forth. And the sons died fairly young. They died at 49 and 51, That's true. is that yeah. right? Yeah, because, because after Audubon's death, the family fell on hard times. They made some bad investments and and eventually the property they'd managed to accumulate had to be sold. Someone told me once that any, every time you write a biography, you're necessarily writing a tragedy because everyone dies in the last act, which is true enough. Audubon's life was f- partly filled with adversity, and I think that simply made the success even more extraordinary. He really set out to be a businessman. He set out to be a frontier businessman. He married a wonderful young English woman who had just moved with her family to the same part of Pennsylvania where he lived after he arrived here in 1803. They married in 1808 and went over the Appalachians to Louisville and set up a store. Then they moved on downriver to what was really the western edge of settlement at that time, Henderson, Kentucky, about a hundred miles upriver from the from the uh, Mississippi junction with the Ohio. And by by eighteen fifteen, they had three general stores. They were building a huge steam-powered grist and sawmill on the river. Uh, they owned substantial property. They owned nine slaves, which was pretty standard at that time in Kentucky. Um, And then came what all of his previous biographers misunderstood to be his failure as a businessman because they said he was spending too much time birding and not enough time taking care of business. Well, it turns out that's not true. It coincided with the panic. coincided with a huge collapse in the American economic system when, ironically, the federal government had to put together enough gold and silver to finish paying for the Louisiana Purchase. The final payment was due, and they did that, the first national bank in Pennsylvania did that by calling in all its loans to all the new state banks in the Trans-Appalachians West, who had written in good faith paper that they didn't actually have any gold and silver to cover. So they called in their notes to the businessman. I found out that almost literally every business west of the Appalachians failed that year. Which and that at the time that was um, this gold standard or, or time mm-hmm. paper to real metal right. was right. what was done. That is no longer the case. So this right. may sound for that very reason. Because, yeah, no. <laughs> at, at this moment, and in fact, every bank could issue money. So that later on, when Audubon is traveling around the country, you hear him complaining the way some of us have in international travel, of having to constantly change the local paper for the paper in the next town, usually at a loss. That's why having some gold and silver in your pocket turned out to be a benefit. Thus, when he left the United States in 1826, after he had put together on this voyage that I read from and some years of working in Louisiana, a portfolio of about 250 of the 435 drawings he would need for his four-volume work. He sailed to England in the summer of 1826 to get this work produced, the only place he could go that had that scale of of production capabilities. There wasn't anything like it in the United States. He had a purse with about, in modern dollars, about $15,000 in gold and silver in it. And that was his stake to get started. And it was the failure in business that led him to become a professional artist. You know, before 1819, although he had kept a journal of his bird observations from the time he arrived in the United States, if not before in France, and had slowly perfected his ability to draw birds alive and flying and nesting and courting and attacking and all the different behaviors that he saw in the field. 
he never thought of himself as an artist. He thought of it as a kind of a noble hobby. I mean, he had some pretensions of being of, of the upper class in France, but he wasn't really. His father had been a ship's captain, but a wealthy man who had owned a huge plantation in Haiti where Audubon was born. Um, So you mentioned David, the the French painter David, and um, that was one of, Audubon was not really trained as a painter, um, but one of the stories is that um, he studied under the the French painter David. He claimed that. When his business failed, he, of course, had to find another way to make a living. And at that point, he started doing black chalk portraits of people. This was an era in the life of the world when the only images that were available were those that were handmade. There were no... Pre-daguerreotype, pre-cameras. No cameras, none of that. And an oil painting cost in modern dollars about $1,500 as a minimum. That meant that there were many, many people, especially in the pioneer communities, who lost loved ones and had no image to keep of their loved ones. So when Audubon burst on the scene, freshly bankrupt, humiliated, trying to find a way to get back so he could feed his family, offering to do a black chalk portrait for $5, the equivalent of $100, he immediately had a huge market. In fact, people would call him up in the middle of the night. They'd send their son to go get him and say, Mr. Audubon, Mr. Audubon, Grandpa's dying. Would you please come to the house and draw him before he goes? And Audubon would come out and sit by the dying person and do this nice portrait, and then they would have something to remember. Once a couple, a minister and his wife, lost a little girl, and a week later, Audubon happened to be coming through that neighborhood, and they had the body exhumed, and the coffin raised up and laid her out on the table and asked him to draw her. They were so aggrieved at their loss. And he wrote in his journal, he said, I drew her as if she were still alive, and they were much comforted. So he filled a really great role, and very quickly he was making a good living again. That taught him that he could be a professional artist. That and then the realization that the previous artist and writer, Alexander Wilson, who had produced a six-volume work on American birds called American Ornithology, not very good drawings. Wilson was, in fact, a poet and a weaver, not not an artist, but he taught himself to draw well enough to show the birds' characteristics. Audubon realized that that one that had been a success, but commercially, two, Wilson had only done the birds of the Eastern Flyway, and very few birds from the Mississippi Flyway. Therefore, there was a place for, as it were, an expanded version of what Wilson had did. So that was part two. And he put that together and realized that he indeed could take on this great task, which was extraordinarily ambitious. The man had no money. He was barely up past bankruptcy. He had no formal training in doing birds, if he did indeed in doing portraits. Not probably under Jacques-Louis David, however. David was later asked by Charles-Lucien Bonaparte, who was an ornithologist and a nephew of of Napoleon, and knew David because David was Napoleon's court painter if he'd ever heard of John James Audubon. And David said, no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so. So that was just part of Audubon's sales pitch, if you will. And he didn't start making that claim until after Napoleon died and was in New Orleans, where a lot of French 
noble expatriates from the French Revolution lived. So really what he was saying was, I'm one of you and you'll sales like my pitch. work. Yes, sales pitch, exactly. <laughs> A little marketing. Right, right, right. Look at the top of the hour, so we're going to take another short break. You're tuned in to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Richard Rhodes. We're talking about his book, John James Audubon, The Making of an American. We'll be right back. listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today, Richard Rhodes, is the author of John James Audubon, The Making of an American. We were talking a little bit in the last segment of the show about um, Audubon's capacity to reinvent himself. Right. And um, we talked in the first segment of the show about um, the ways in which this is not just a biography of a person, but it's also a portrait of the U.S. in the early 19th century and um, the expansion from the East Coast mm-hmm. on toward the Mississippi and um then further west eventually. Later, yeah. yeah. But um, one of the things that strikes me about Audubon started out, intent. he came to this country with no English, um, taught himself English, or two Quaker ladies taught him English, and um, set himself up as a businessman, failed, set himself up as a painter, as a portrait mm-hmm, mm-hmm. artist, as a naturalist, yes. kept reinventing himself yes. throughout his life, which is sort of fits right in with the American story, the Horatio Alger, pull yourself oh, up absolutely. Steps, and sure. story. In that sense, too. And in that sense, part of that generation, which was reinventing itself. Which there was, was a inventing, lot to invent. Or it wasn't even well, reinventing, indeed, just inventing. But they were starting businesses, they were founding towns and cities, they were inventing new professions as new technologies came on. One of the delightful things in going through Audubon's lifetime of correspondence and journals is to see the day when he saw his first steamboat go by on the Ohio River. Which meant now that travel is possible going up the river. As well as down river. And and as with all means of communication, brought all sorts of city slicker skills up the river to these these country places along the river that had not seen the, the like before of painted ladies and gamblers and all those qualities. So the same thing that happens with new technologies, oh my God, it's going to be the ruin of us all, happened then too, but it was the steamboat instead of the internet. Right. right. So. <laughs> Never thought about the steamboat and the internet in the same sort of Exactly. Parallel. But in fact, that's what it was. It was a kind of means of communication. He writes in his journal uh, with some excitement, today I'm writing for the first time with an iron pen, meaning he had used quills before. Uh. And the first pen with an iron tip, a steel tip, came through. He saw, rode on one of the first uh, passages of the railroad, the new, brand new railroad between Liverpool and London and didn't much like it. And his wife, Lucy, said, the train went by so fast we couldn't see anybody. It was going 25 miles an hour, which means we as a species had to learn to pan our heads when you go that fast in order to to record what you're seeing as you go by. 
which I'd never thought of before, but there you are. So his journal also depicts these moments in the history of, of, of Europeans, if you will, when they, in, in, in addition, as he writes about his interaction with the Osage Indians and the Shawnees, you see that process too. In, in fascinating detail. I mean, the, the Osage adored him because he drew their portraits and the, their warriors were famously vain about their appearance. They couldn't believe someone could capture their likeness on a sheet of paper. But when he went hunting with them and they were going to get a smoke a bear out of a log where it was hibernating, they told him to climb up in a tree. <laughs> they didn't trust him. What would he know about bear hunting, this European? Which he dutifully did, dutifully of course. Did. Right? I, go, I go straight up in the tree myself, <laughs> well, regardless of what I knew about bear hunting. <laughs> Now, this is, um, you, you do not only write biography, you write right. fiction and you write history. Um, you won the Pulitzer nonfiction for your book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, and your book, Dark Sun, about the making of the hydrogen bomb, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in history. Right. Um, tell me a little bit about the, the differences. I mean, writing about uh, um, yes. yeah. the atomic bomb, writing about the H-bomb, <clears throat> versus writing about... Um, an early American hero? Exactly. Now, this was the first book, for example, where I had to deal with, with uh, autograph materials, handwritten materials, and everything in Audubon's day was handwritten. He had a, to get a pass to go into Indian country when he took a steamship voyage in 1843 up the Missouri River to the junction of the Missouri and the Yellowstone in what's now northwestern North Dakota. That was his last great expedition. And the pass, which was signed by the president, is is handwritten, <laughs> a government document, as everything was. So I had to learn to read his handwriting. I had to then transcribe all those documents onto onto computer files so that I could read them as I needed them. Were the documents readily available? Were archives Yeah. In his case, his letters are at Yale, Harvard, Princeton, and uh, the American Philosophical Society, and a couple of other places, a couple of museums in Europe. And I was able to get copies made of all of them, typically scanned, so they were very readable. It, Audubon's handwriting wasn't terribly readable, so it was hard to do. But once it was done, then I, it was done forever. So, uh, But there's another quality. So there was that aspect of dealing with a time when I, there was not as much material to have to work your way through. When you're writing a biography, you have the papers of the person, and then you have the need to fill in the background around them, primarily from secondary sources. So it has a very distinct shape and an edge to it. And the fact that it was earlier rather than later gives it a limit, too, because documents don't survive forever. So you have less to work through. When you're writing about the making of the atomic bomb or the book I'm working on right now, which is the third volume in this trilogy that I will have done about the nuclear age, uh, which covers the period, the latest volume that I'm halfway through writing, is starts around 1985, when Gorbachev takes power and uh, ends up around 1995 with the signing of the permanent extension of the nuclear non-proliferation treaty a nice piece of history but I'm just inundated with material there is so much there's so many people involved each one has his own biography that I have to work up at least a little bit there's no edge to the story you could take any particular line and follow it out a long long way and write a whole book about that how do you choose your line then? For example, in this book, John James Audubon, um, you spend a good deal of time on the love affair right. with between John James Audubon and his mm. wife Lucy Audubon, um, which 
is a choice. Um, in, yeah. in the books about the, uh, the nuclear age, you could choose. You could choose. How do you, how do you choose your edge? Is it personal? But in both those um, books, they were, there were two things. One, I was writing about the development of a particular weapons system. So that's a, that's a clothesline to hang things on. And I was also, in each case, I found a central figure, not necessarily central in importance, but central in the sense that he'd been there at all these important moments. So you have a, ca- a point of view character who exactly. can tell the story. So it was Leo Szilard in the case mm-hmm. of the making of the atomic bomb, and it was uh, Robert Oppenheimer and Curtis LeMay who ran the Strategic Air Command in the case of the hydrogen bomb. I'm having a much harder time with this book, finding some central figure, but at least for the first two-thirds of the book, clearly it's Gorbachev. Mm-hmm. He was the central figure, and I've been able to follow through from his perspective. And, and then, then the end of out. the Cold War, yes, there's a fragmentation. There is, but again, there are some specific things that got done that I think will carry it through. What did we do when what had been one nuclear power split off and became four nuclear powers? We were terrified. Instead of one superpower called the Soviet Union, there was a superpower, as it were, in terms of nuclear weapons, Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan. And what we decided to do, James Baker, the Secretary of State, was to go around to those four capitals, almost flying round robin from one to the next, telling the other three, you must send those weapons back to Russia and sign the non-proliferation treaty. And Belarus said, great, if you'll help pay for it, we don't have any money, but we'll be glad to. So did Kazakhstan. The Ukrainians said, are you serious? We don't trust the Russians. We don't want to give them these weapons. Maybe they'll use them on us. And it took five hard years of negotiating and twisting arms and bribing if necessary before the Ukrainians finally agreed to that. One of the nice spin-offs, just to finish the story, is that the 500 tons of weapons-grade uranium that was represented by those warheads, we arranged to buy... We, the United States. We, the United States, through a corporation that was set up called the United States Enrichment Corporation. We arranged to buy it, have the Russians blend it down to reactor-grade fuel. And half of the power reactors in the United States right now are burning Russian warheads. So that was a win-win for everybody. It didn't cost the government anything because the power companies buy the blended-down fuel to burn in their reactors. So that was the kind of creative story and interesting story that comes out of that period that I'll tell in the book. Now, in, get, in bringing together, let's we're, we're moving toward the end of the show, sure. and so we might as well just stay with where where, where you're headed and what you're working on. Um, in putting together John James Audubon, those, th- this is the story of an artist, of a naturalist, of a pioneer, right. and of a long dead one. In telling the stories of weapon systems, mm-hmm. um, there are lots of sensitivities that are still current Indeed. sensitivities. Sure. How do you negotiate access to get the material that you need to tell the story that you feel should be told? You know, with the making of the atomic bomb, I really was unknown to that community. And mostly that book was built out of documents, as it had to be. I interviewed a few of the people, and they were available, Edward Teller, Hans Bethe, those people who were there at the time. Not so much to get their stories, because their stories had been told so many times they were worn down even for them, and the dates were wrong, and so forth. I knew the facts better than they did by the time I got to their houses to talk to them. But I wanted to beard the lion in his chamber, as it were, and see what sort of people they were. And they were fascinating and powerful people, just even in their their old age, as they had been even more so when they were young. Um, With this book, however... I've reached a point now where the community knows me well and, and, and seems to be eager to talk to me. 
So I've got more offers for interviews than I really need. The real problem this time around is it's no longer telling a historical story. I'm very passionately involved in this book. And I'm sure some people will read it and say it's not objective. Well, I don't see how you can be objective about the continuing presence of 40 or 50,000 nuclear weapons in the world, any one of which could take out an entire city and kill several million human beings. And the way we went through the Cold War, the near misses that occurred that many haven't even heard of besides the Cuban Missile Crisis, we came very close to nuclear war with the Soviet Union in 1983, that late. And I'm told by people in the business that there were other near misses that haven't ever been declassified, and I don't know about those. But this will be a book that will, after it tells this story, will end up with a, a very careful analysis of what is necessary and possible to reach nuclear abolition. I believe that's possible. I believe the world would be better off if we had no nuclear weapons, and we would not be unprotected if it were done right. We, the United States, or the world, or the world, the world. We, the United States, to the extent that that's always been the argument against getting rid of our nuclear weapons, that we would be undefended. Obviously, the whole world would have to eliminate the nuclear weapons. I think that could be done. It's really just if you think about the time before there were missiles when bombers carried the nuclear weapons. It took ten hours to start a nuclear war. Now it takes fifteen minutes. So if you just think about moving the weapons away from the warheads, away from the missiles, dismantling the warheads and putting them aside, you reach the point where deterrence becomes just extended to a three-month range instead of 15 minutes. And everybody has a better chance to talk it out. Everybody can change their mind awfully fast in 15 minutes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Richard Reds, for joining me today. Thank Um, you. It's been a real pleasure. You've been tuned in to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My guest today has been Richard Rhodes, author of John James Audubon, The Making of an American, and um, many, many other books. Stay tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. The Sports Report is next, and archives of The Living Writers Show are now available at www.wcbn.org slash livingwriters. Thank you to our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for doing such a great job.
satchel full of woes For she never had a man who could or would propose Suitcase Susie took a transatlantic cruise She was searching for the one to cure her case of blues I got a case but I don't know what it is From the dikes of Holland to the Nile She kept hoping that she'd be alive Can you imagine that jive? Suitcase Susie found her traveling aboard So she came on, came on, mad the guy next door She married him, I hope she did 